and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. In the Chamber studio today, I have with me Queen's Counsel Clive Elliott. As well as being a barrister, Clive is a patent attorney and arbitrator, and he's ranked by Chambers and Partners as one of New Zealand's leading IP silks with a particular flair when it comes to handling especially complex matters. Clive is a past president of the New Zealand Bar Association. He's also a past member of the Auckland Branch Council of the New Zealand Law Society and the Legal Practice Division of the International Bar Association. He's also a past co-chair of the Intellectual Property and Entertainment Law Committee of the IBA and a past president of the Intellectual Property Society of Australia and New Zealand. He was convener of the Intellectual Property Committee of the New Zealand Law Society for a period of 10 years. He's the co-author of LexisNexis Loose Leaf Text Copyright Design Patents and Trademarks. He's been a part-time lecturer in the postgraduate master's course both at the Department of Law and the Department of Commercial Law at Auckland University and has taught the course Selected Aspects of IP, being intellectual property, of course. He's a frequent writer and commentator on uh, intellectual property matters, information technology issues, and is a member of the editorial board of the Intellectual Property Forum. Clive is a self-described serial dabber in the arts. He's got a long-standing interest in social issues. He's He has had several solo art exhibitions. His latest in 2020 was a climate art exhibition, so-called So Much to Lose. Uh, while being a regular author and commentator on legal issues, he has recently published his first book, The Power of Wellbeing, which is about how New Zealand can help the Western world reimagine and rebuild democracy. Hello, Clive, and welcome. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Chris. It's fantastic to have you uh, on the podcast today. Yeah. Now, um, for some of the listeners, they may not be, uh, if they don't know you, uh, quick off the mark to have picked up just a slight South African twinge there, possibly from uh, from uh, Tell is that would I be would uh, I be right? That's right, from Durban. From Durban, and <laughs> to be exact. Um, tell me what it was like growing up in South Africa. Um, it was very different to to New Zealand, and uh, I grew up in in a very small town just south of Durban, um, called Demansum Toti, um, or Toti for short, and that's a Zulu name which means the place of sweet waters. Right. Okay. And I, I take it that there was some sort of water aspect to the, the geography of the place. Well, there was, yes. There was a, there was a river that, that ran through Amanzimtoti, and it was known as a, as a staging post for uh, Zulu um, uh, patrols that went to the south coast and stopped there for water. Wow, fantastic. Now, uh, you grew up there. Did you, did you study law there? Where did, you, where did you study law? I studied law at, the, um, at, at Natal University in Durban, and I did my law degree there. And uh, I worked for two years in South Africa before leaving. Okay. And then you had the, the move to the, the second stage of your life to, to New Zealand. And did you, did you settle straight here in Auckland, or did you go somewhere else when you arrived in New Zealand? Well, I arrived in Auckland, um, stayed up here for a while, and then moved to Wellington for five years. And I worked down there before returning back to Auckland. Okay. And what sort of work were you doing? I was working for, for Baldwin's, as they were then, which was a patent attorney firm. 
and I, I ended up staying with them. I, I thought it was just a part-time job, and, I, and 17 years later, I was still there. <laughs> <laughs> On a temporary assignment yes. there for 17 years. Now, yes. I think you might, might have made it to, to partnership there in the firm as, uh, as the, the litigation partner, would yes. that be right? Yes. Yeah. Well, that would have been quite, a, quite an exciting time and a, an interesting stage of your career. It, it was. Uh, uh, it was at the time we had the biggest, um, the biggest IP litigation team in the country, and I was also managing the Auckland office, so I was pretty busy. Right. Was well, so it sounds like you would have had quite an intense workload. Was that a, a factor that led to you uh, going to the independent bar? Um, yes and no. Uh, I did. I did enjoy working in a firm, but I, I'd always seen myself going to the bar one day. So it was just a question of timing. Yeah, and when you went to the bar, you went to Shortland Chambers, and yes. which you still are there now. Yes, yeah. I'm still there. Okay, now that's we're going back to must be at least nearly twenty years. Or yes, it 20 yes. Years? So that was yeah. twenty. Yeah, at uh, at two thousand, I moved. Right. So okay. I've been there just over twenty years now. Right. And of course, you would have seen a, a lot of change in the IP space over that period of time. You know, we've uh, had changes to the legislation, yes. and uh, we lost the Privy Council. Gained the Supreme Court. They've had a couple of look, looks at a couple of uh, major IP issues. Yes. And you've been involved in, in some of those cases. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I was, I was lucky enough to, to appear in the Privy Council on, on two occasions um, before, before we lost the right, right of appeal. And, and then in the Supreme Court, I did the first IP case, which was, um, you know, before the, it was a patent case, certainly the first patent case. I think there might have been a copyright case before that. But that was quite a big change. Um, but you know that was that was really part of New Zealand's um, growth as a you know as a sovereign state. It's being able to uh, have have the final court determine uh, the laws of, yes. uh, of of our unique country. That, that's right. And yeah. I think uh, at the time I, I was and I was unsure where I stood on that, but I think it, it was the right move because I think we do have to stand on our own two feet as a country, and we and we're doing that. Mm. And I guess, uh, would you agree with me that one of the keys to that is ensuring uh, that as a small nation, and when I say a small nation, I'm not talking about it from a ge- geography point of view, because I mean, you know, New Zealand uh, is, uh, isn't small from that perspective. I mean, I think the landmass of uh, of the Netherlands, Holland is is only really from Talpo North, uh, yes. and there's eighteen and a half million people there. But from a population perspective, uh, we're still smaller numbers, um, yeah. you know, yeah, five million. Uh, and of course, the the legal profession, which is where the judiciary is going to draw its talent from, uh, from you know, lawyers who 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 work their way through and. Uh, are selected because of what they can they, they can offer in terms of service to the community. Uh, we don't have the same pool that the the Commonwealth had, so we don't have yeah. you know necessarily a large pool to draw talent that the the Privy Council may have may have had. Yeah, um, do you true. see that as a, as as one of the the downsides of the the loss of the Privy Council? Oh, definitely. I mean, the Privy Council drew from you know a, a far greater pool, and the and the talent on on that court was amazing, um, but you know we, uh, we we have to balance that up against other other benefits, and 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 that is a court that is attuned to the social policies of of New Zealand, which I think the Privy Council accepted they they weren't attuned to. So so I think that there's a there, there are pluses and minuses with all of these things. 
Um, but I think I think ultimately it's it's been it's been a success, and um, you know I think we can be very proud of of the of the court we have and and the talent we have. Yeah, I guess look, not that I've done any empirical research into this, but um, anecdotally, just my perception of it is that our Supreme Court hasn't produced judge uh, many judgments that have resulted in the legislature, for example, going, well, hold on, that's just not right. That's not the way our society yeah. wants the laws to be and have had to correct it through that mechanism. Yeah, um, true. And it certainly had the advantage of uh, access to to the highest court. I mean, having to fund a trip to the United Kingdom, uh, certainly not for the weary, faint-hearted or those without the economic means. Exactly. It was very expensive getting over there and the, the whole process was, you know, was, was expensive. So I think in terms of access to justice, it's been it's been a plus. Um, personally, I'd like to <clears throat> I'd like to see the court take on more IP cases, but that's a different that's a different <laughs> issue. Yeah, I, I guess that's what happens when that's your area of interest. <laughs> like to see a few more IP cases. Well, look, I, I'm sure we will as time goes by. Undoubtedly, it's always um, a, a moving uh, area and developing area of the law. Now, um, IP, of course, is uh, sits very squarely with uh, with copyright and content. And in another part of your life uh, that you have, because uh, you're not just a lawyer, uh, just a Queen's Counsel, is you're a content creator. Um, you've uh, you've had a couple of art exhibitions. Tell, tell me about your interest in in art, and, and this is painting. You know, yes, yeah. yes. Well, I've I've been painting for about fifteen years now, and uh, my mother painted, and uh, she. She was a musician as well. But my family's quite creative. Uh, I can't sing or play any musical instrument, but I can throw paint around. So I followed I followed her in that in that vein, and I've really enjoyed it since I took it up. Right. Okay. And are you, are you working on any artworks at the moment, or is this something that that just kind of comes and goes? Um, I am. I'm I'm painting a scene actually from New Plymouth because we stayed with family down there, uh, just just south of of New Plymouth, and I said, you've got a big wall there that needs a painting. And they said, we'd love, love one of yours. So I'm doing one of the, of the beach at yeah. Oakura, just south of New Plymouth. Look, it's, well, that, it, it's great to hear not only your own personal interest in, in, in art and creativity, but the fact that there's a family background to it. Uh, and it sounds to me that you've had the advantages of growing up in a family that's creative and, and put some value on Creativity yes. and, and art. Yeah. Um, now we we're going to get onto the topic of well-being, uh, but I just thought I'd share with you um, some advice that I received from a, a, a friend a few years ago when I was going through some some struggles myself. Yeah. Um, and what she said to me is, she said that she found through um, periods of time when she was feeling low that uh, engaging in creativity, you know, working on things, building things, making things even just writing, uh, really helped her as an outlet t- towards her refinding um, proper well-being. I mean, yeah. is that just, is that something that is a benefit that you see for individuals engaging in, in creativity, whether it's artistic or otherwise? Definitely, definitely. I think um, <clears throat> as lawyers, we, um, we under a lot of pressure work-wise. Uh, we have a um, you know a, a very strict limits in which we have to, we have to operate. We have to be accurate. We have to be careful. We have to get things right. Um, art is is everything that that the law isn't. You don't have to get things right. There's no right and wrong. You can you can 
do something and uh, it might um, appeal to you and, and, and not appeal to me or vice versa. That doesn't matter. Um, the, the beauty of art is that it can communicate at a different degree. And, and personally, and I think that this is, this is what all lawyers should, should realise, is that they can't just be lawyers 24-7. They've got to be human beings as well. And this um, outlet is so important to, to really just channel, you know, channel the other, the, the other, the other you into something, something which is, uh, I wouldn't say, I was going to say unlawful, but non-law stuff. Is basically, and and it uses a different side of your brain. Um, I think writing is we 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 live in the, in the written word or the spoken word, but the, but the beauty of art is it's actually it's a different form of communication, and um, and for for that reason, I think it's really important in terms of of uh, of work and and life balance to have that outlet. So, Clive, <laughs> just in terms of. Uh, Great advice, by the way, um, that lawyers should have something more to their lives than just being a lawyer 24-7. Yep. Do you find, with from a creativity point of view, art, do you find that it enables you to engage in a bit of mindfulness and helping you kind of re-equalise and resettle? Oh, definitely. It, it, um, it, it allows you to unwind and to get away, get away from work stuff. And and the problem with our sort of work is that it follows you. You you can't escape it because you take it with you to the shower, to the toilet, to bed, because you're constantly thinking about your cases, about your arguments, about the other side's arguments, you know, how are we going to overcome this issue? And you've got to do something else to actually stop your mind. Oh, look, you're absolutely right. Uh, prior to breaking my leg, <laughs> falling off a skateboard, I uh, used to do a lot of uh, distance running, uh, clocked up 11 marathons in the space yeah. of four years. Uh, I mean, I found running uh, to be a form of moving meditation, mm. but you're right about thinking about your work. I mean, there was plenty of kilometres that I would do in any week and I uh, couldn't help but be thinking about a case or cases that I was working on and trying to come up with a solution while running. But it is important to be able to switch your mind to something else so that you're not just constantly being uh, being worn down by thinking about clients' problems. Well, that, I think that's that's the problem with walking or running is that your mind is still going to be going back to work. Yeah. You've got to actually take it away. You've got to give it something else to do. And the beauty of art is it engages your 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 brain absolutely because you have to concentrate on what color, what brush, where am, where am I going to put that? Am I going to put it there? And that means you can't think about work. That's the beauty of it. It is no absolutely right. Well, let's move away from the individual benefits of fine art. Uh, what's your views on the benefits to society? And, and look, let's just talk about New Zealand. New Zealand has produced some fantastic artists, whether it's painters, poets, uh, songwriters, etc. Uh, where does that sit in a in a society that um, produces some well being? Well, I think I think it's a good segue into the topic of well-being because because I think that what what I'm arguing for in this book is that we have to move away from just getting by in life, and that, and that means just surviving, and in other words, having having a having a roof of our, over our heads, having food and 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 living. We've got to get something better than that. We've got to we've got to leverage that and and the the distinction I draw is between getting by and getting ahead. 
and and that means the finer things in life. Because if we if we if we look at um, you know education is important, healthcare is critical, but what I'm looking at is people actually flourishing and and doing well, and and that means something in addition. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean material wealth, That's because right. I, I mean I think most people would accept that. Being materially wealthy doesn't necessarily lead to happiness, exactly. and uh, on a measure of happiness, um, some of the uh, poorer people of this world possibly outperform some of the more financially affluent yes. um, uh, societies or communities. I mean, would you agree with oh, that? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what's your definition of happiness? How do you define happiness? Um what are what um, happiness and well-being are often compared, and and and, and Jeremy Bentham, who, who I refer to in the book, um, spoke about happiness, and that that was his conception of it. Um, I think I think the problem with happiness and its definitional issue is that people people think of happiness and people smiling and laughing, but 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 it's more than that. It's actually being content and and living a good life. And so I think I think what we have to do is to try and put together policies that allow people to to lead a, a happy life, a good life, a, a well life, to to be well. Um, and that's what well being is all about: is achieving that for as, as many people as possible. And, and do we look at that on a, a subjective analysis? That is, you know, how someone might report their level of happiness on a scale of one to ten. Well, can we look at it also in other ways, like, for example, longevity? Um, that is, you know, how long people are living for. Is that, a, is that a, yeah. something we can look at? Yes, I, I definitely. And uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot of argument in this, in this field about um, objective and subjective measures. And in terms of, the, in, in terms of the, the well-being measures we use in New Zealand, one of them is subjective well-being. And, and, and that's on the, on the simple basis that if I say I'm well and happy, then, then I am. But there are other measures because, you, because I think that the um, academic writers have said, well, someone could be, um, could be living in abject poverty and still be happy. Is, is, that a, is that an accurate measure of well-being? And the argument is no, it's not, because they, they live in a, a wretched life. Well, you do make the point in your book. You say that uh, at its core, general well-being seeks to achieve a better life for more people, even if that means a little less for those with a lot more. That sounds very Jeremy Bentham. You mentioned it yes. before, utilitarian. Is, yes, is, is, it is. Is, is that where you're getting to? It's, a, it's the, one of the guiding principles in, in the book is, is doing, doing good for as many people as you can with a limited resource. Because you don't, we don't have unlimited resources. Because otherwise, we would make sure everyone's living a, a, a thriving, flourishing life. Yeah, I mean, you also do say on the topic of happiness that it doesn't necessarily mean um, being in a good mood or having a positive frame of mind. It's much more than this. You say it means experiencing a more comprehensive state of well-being, enabling one to live a meaningful and useful life. What do you mean by meaningful and useful life? What I mean by that, and, and this is where I draw the distinction between getting ahead, is we want people to 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 lead a fulfilling life in the sense, and I, I use the example of someone living in poverty but being very happy. Um, they, they they're not achieving a great deal other than getting by day day by day, 
what I'm looking at is is people doing better, and and it means that people who've got a got a poor education and are on welfare get out of that get out of that cycle, get get a decent education and and get a job and 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 move out of the out of the welfare trap. Right. You, you do uh, draw a lot, or I got the sense you draw a lot in your book, um, uh, not only from a philosophical point of view, and there's a, there's a few sort of uh, philosophers that you refer to, but also yes. you seem to draw very heavily on the field of uh, humanistic psychology. Um, yes. and, and when I say that, I say that as comparing it to uh, the field of positive psychology. Yes. Uh, and in particular, you do make reference to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, yes. and, and and is that the point you're making about rather than just meeting those basic needs, there, there needs to be more for someone to lead a, a, f- a fulfilling life. Yes. They need to have purpose. Yes. Um, and as long as their stated purpose and they lead an authentic life for that stated purpose, then it will just flow that um, they'll feel satisfied, happiness, and, and they'll have a better sense of well-being. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I mean pur- purpose. Purpose is, is is so important because um, everyone's purpose is going to be set at a different level, and we have to accept that. and And everyone has to be able to thrive to to their ability, because everyone is not going to thrive to the same extent, and they're going to thrive in different ways. Yeah. And um, but the point is that people people have to aspire for more. And they have to they have to realise that more is achievable, and society and this is I think the important thing about the book has to encourage that and provide the environment in which people can do that. Yeah. Now, and this I think this is literally what you make the point that the core idea of your book is that our underlying social contract needs to be rewritten. Uh, you go on to say that the fallacy of generating value for shareholders, regardless of the consequences and at the expense of everything else cannot continue. And you then make the, and then you point to sustainability. You say short-term profit has to um, uh, not become our yardstick. We've got to create a new paradigm. Now, what does that new paradigm look like? I think, it, I think it's a paradigm which, which retreats from the late-stage capitalism that we're experiencing. Um, in countries like the US and, and to an extent in New Zealand where you have extremely wealthy people and, and a lot of people in poverty, and this, this inequality is a, is a huge threat to democracy. Okay. I do want to come back to the term inequality and, and also equity and equality generally um, with you, but just so we can recap, am, am I understanding you to say uh, that the the Western neoliberal model isn't working for the majority yeah. and, and it hasn't been working for some time. And we've got to use this, for example, this pandemic as an opportunity to step back and say, uh, what can we do to make the lives of more people better? Yeah, exactly. I think, I think in a way, I think, I think I agree entirely that the, that the neoliberal order is crumbling and when you see 10 families or 10 people owning the vast majority of wealth in a country, that, that's, that can't be right. And, um, but I, I, this, is not a political, this is not a political book. No, it's, 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 it's not the, it's not the uh, Elliot Manifesto of, uh, <laughs> uh, of, 
I guess, conser- fiscally conservative social liberalism um, yeah. and how to lead a better life, is it? Well, it's not, but it is. <laughs> it's <laughs> but, not what it is. But yeah. in a social sense, I mean, this is this is a this is a, hum, a humanist um, book. It's not not a political book. Yeah. And what what I'm trying to argue for is for well being. Um, and and I, I need to stress that when I say well-being, well-being is 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 not a thing. It's not it's not it is an outcome. It's 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 not a treatise or a or a philosophy. It's a, it's an outcome if all the other ingredients are put together. And I know and I I know you're going to come to that later about what the ingredients of the of my um, theory is. Um, but if they all work together, then then the outcome is well-being. It's not the other way around. Okay. So who are the key players in the, in, in the design of a, of a better system? Who do you see are the key players? In, um, in current New Zealand? In current New Zealand. Well, I, I, I think Bill English is actually a key, a key influence in this, in this area. Yeah, now um, I'm very interested in Bill English because I noticed that he's been doing a bit of work with, the, and I think he has for some time, with the Howard League, which is an organisation there for penal reform of our prison system, try and make it better. And he's clearly someone who has, you know, served as a as a prime minister at one point, you know, cabinet minister, etc., a long period of time. But what 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 I'm trying to point to is, is in, in any society, it's made up of you've got individuals communities, the wider society, you've got government, you've got um, business, uh, etc. Where do they all fit in in this, this new paradigm? Well, they've all got to work together. And the, the, the critical thing is that these balls have all got to be in constant flux and, and in symmetry so that, so that, you know, policymakers, business, you know, local communities, local government, all have to work together, and and individuals have to have to trust that those instruments are going to work in their in their favour and for their benefit, and 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 that is why trust is important. But the but all of these um, levers have got to be have got to be pulled in tandem, um, and I think that Bill English had a, had a vision for for actually um, improving the lot of people at the bottom of the heap. And he, 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 his, his, his social, his, his social policies were actually extremely liberal, even though, even though he came at it from, from a, uh, from a fiscally tight um, perspective. Being a former finance minister of a national government. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But, but in a way, it was his, it was his policies, and, and, and earlier, earlier than it, it, it's not, it, it wasn't solely uh, Bill English. Uh, Sir Bill English. It was um, a number of a number of um, governments on on both sides of the aisle, and that's the point I make in the book that this is not a this is not a political philosophy; it's a social philosophy. Okay, right. But once you have the social philosophy, presumably the policies have to then, from a political point of view, be uh, consistent and fit within. That social philosophy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They do. Okay, they, and and what I understand you to be to, to be advocating in the book is a movement away from that capitalist model that, for example, corporations only exist to maximise profit for return to shareholders. Yeah, and but the, but that's that's not 
necessarily a, a new concept, but you do yeah. build on it. Like, um, uh, for example, the, the the concept of B corporations. Now, in Australia, they actually have legislation that enables for, and when I say B co- um, corporations for listeners, these are cor- benefit corporations that are statutorily set up. The framework is there so that no longer is the principal objective to maximise profit for the shareholders, but you can have companies that have wider objectives, and that is that they are there to provide, for example, some social good. Yep. Um, and the United States have these these B Corps um, as well, but New Zealand's legislation under our Companies Act, we don't provide for that. That's not set up. It's the directors have to... Uh, work in the best interest of the share of the yes. of the company, and the company is the shareholders to a degree. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I mean that, that that's that's a problem because that's that, that is talking about capitalism and it's you know in its harshest sense, you know, it's there. It's a profit. It's a profit mechanism. Um, the 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 change is from is from just focusing on GDP, which is about purchase and output, and instead of actually saying well well, well where, where is that what does that translate into it, it translates into profits and it it, 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 it translates into all, all sorts of other measurements which which economists understand but it doesn't actually map how people are doing and that's the beauty of GWB or general well-being is it measures how well people are doing and that's what matters. Okay. And then w- once we've got our policies around that, then, for example, where does law play in that? What what can law deliver to help uh, achieve the objective of general well-being? Well, well law is really important um, because one of one of my ingredients in terms of the uh, of the satellites that flow around the, the center of general well-being is about institutional integrity. Um, if we don't have that, we don't we don't have a fair and and free society, and we have to be very careful that we can't assume that things are going to continue the way they have, and we just have to look at the U.S. to to realise that a democracy is a is a fickle beast. Well, I mean, who who would have thought that you would have uh, protesters? I mean, we'll call them right wing because they probably, you know, seem to be more Republican Trump supporters. Um, occupying, you know, one of the the seats of democracy, being you know the House of Representatives in the in the US. Um, exactly, just quite incredible. Um, now, you, you you do talk in your book, and you do actually dive into some specific areas that need to change. Um, for a vision of uh, general well-being being achieved, and and one of them is uh, is domestic violence. Yes. Um, of course, law can play a role in that because you can pass laws, and there have been there has been a new act passed here in New Zealand to try and curb or address uh, domestic violence. Yes. Um, how how do you what are your suggestions, or where do you see uh, that the law, for example, can help? Address some of the problems that New Zealand has with domestic violence. Well, I think the law. I think the law can play a huge part in in that, in the sense that we can amend our laws and and modify them to cater for domestic violence. And there there are ways in which we've done that ahead of other countries. And I'm thinking of marital rape, for example. Things like that can be legislated, and they need to be. 
because the thought that a husband can can have his way with his wife and and not face any consequences is is something abhorrent to me. And I think that was only made uh, a crime in about 1985. You know, which yeah. is which is still within one generation of of a lifetime. It's quite strange that for exactly that, that, that it was even lawful to start off with. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, you do um, also address. Uh, gun violence as well. We'll get into gun violence in a moment. Before we move off the topic of domestic violence, I mean, does does New Zealand have a domestic violence problem? Are we are we are we still sitting in that once for warriors, Jake the Muzz yeah, type environment? You just have a look at the stats. The stats are terrible. Mm. We've got a huge domestic violence problem here, and um, it's one of the things that I've really struggled with is to understand how a country can be so. Progressive and and um, empathetic and understanding, and at the same time have this this really violent side to it, where um, you know domestic violence and and you know intimate partner violence is is really huge here. Yeah, look the look you're right. It's 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 probably one of New Zealand's dirty secrets. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and would you agree that the way that any society could be measured in terms of general well-being is how it protects its vulnerable, its young, its um, ill, its exactly. elderly? You know exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's the ultimate measure of, um, of of a country's success, in my view, is how it protects the weak, not not the strong, because the strong can protect themselves, and and I think that. You know, when you see children, children getting um, damaged, um, we we failing as a society. And um, I, but I don't think that that the law can can solve the problem. I think I think it, it's a societal problem. And I think what we have to do is deal with all of the of the issues. And 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 that's why I deal with issues like gun violence. Um, domestic violence and and substance abuse because th- those are the those are the, the the indicators of of a society that is not well when 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 you have huge number of people addicted to substances they 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 are they, they are not um, experiencing well being and and people are taking advantage of them there's always someone supplying them that substance there's always someone beating the hell out of them there's always someone else but they they are experiencing that um so so those are the those are the areas where where we're not doing well as a society um this this book is not Saying New Zealand is this is this tranquil yes, Garden of Eden in the South <laughs> Pacific, yeah. and my publisher in New York actually did question me about that. He says, "Well, you 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 saying that you know this country's got something to offer the world, but but you're writing about all of these awful things." And and I I explained to him that I'm 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 saying New Zealand is facing up to these things and trying to actually deal with them. Well, well, look, let's take. Um, gun violence. I mean, you, you you make you mention the intimate partner homicides. This is where, generally speaking, it will be a woman yep. uh, who's killed by uh, her partner, yep. a husband, de facto, boyfriend, otherwise, yep. um, and maybe even a former. Often, 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 often it's the former, and, and too often gun violence is used. I mean. What I can add from my perspective is I one of my more harrowing cases that I've been involved in in recent years was acting for the estate of a, a woman who 
was uh, was was murdered by her husband uh, within 24 hours of her saying, "I'm leaving you." Um, yeah. He lay yeah. wait in a um, in a shed and uh, knew she'd come out because they had horses. Um, he had a shotgun and shot her twice in the face, um, which. Uh, led to led to those injuries uh, killed her yeah, unsurprisingly, yeah, yeah. and then he uh, he defended it. Um, tr- well, try unsuccessfully yeah. though. Tried to defend it as being a, a homicide. Said that it was manslaughter. It was an accident. Yes, uh, etc. But this isn't a a one off story. This yeah, this is a yes. familiar story. Yeah, it is. Um, and the police and our social agencies uh, have to come in and and try and deal with the mess and the aftermath yeah. of these things. Yeah. Um, why, why do we have this problem? Well, I think it's I think it's intergenerational, and it's something that has existed for many years, and and I think it's been brushed under the carpet. And um, I think New Zealand is going through a, a renaissance at the moment, and um, I, I write about that because I think it I think it is happening, and and a big part of it is is average New Zealanders embracing our our true past, which, in, which includes the, the Maori that were here when we arrived and coming to terms with that. And I think that that's a really important part is to reach out to, to each other and understand. And, and you know, it's, it, it's easy to blame everything on colonialism, but colonial, colonialism has had a huge impact on New Zealand, just as it had on South Africa, where I came from. Well, are you indicate? Are you making an indication here of the our colonial past um, being, you know, one group asserting its dominance over another group and doing so through the means of violence? Um, is is that what you're getting to? Yeah, yeah. But in, and I guess in saying that, I mean, New Zealand has had a a long history, um, which you know some quarters take a lot of pride in and uh, engaging in. And gun violence. Uh, I mean, New Zealand has had a history of engaging in other people's civil disputes, um, uh, conflicts, going all the way back to the Boer War. There were New Zealand, New Zealand sent troops over there to engage did. in that. <laughs> and then, of course, um, if one regarded uh, the First World and the Second World War as, as being effectively a civil war in Europe, yep. uh, we jumped in there and then decided to invade Turkey and turned up with a bunch yes. of our young men to kill a bunch of their young men with guns. Yep. Um, then Korea, Vietnam, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. So it is really part of our culture is if someone doesn't do what we think they should do, we'll just turn up and shoot them with guns. Yeah, but I mean, that, that, was, that was part of um, supporting king, king and country. Well, I can't see how Vietnam was supporting king and country. <laughs> That's true. Or Korea. Well, um, yeah, first or and Afghanistan second or, or um, Iraq. Yeah, well, that, that's supporting the Western Alliance. And, um, yeah, but, I mean, I think what, what does concern me more is the number of guns in New Zealand. And what people don't realise is that we've got a huge number, or well, we did, <clears throat> have a huge number of automatic weapons in New Zealand. Now you do, you do cover, and I'm not trying to do spoiler alerts with your book. It's very good, by the way, and I recommend anyone listening to it um, should try yeah. and get their hands on a copy, hard copy. Yeah, do yeah. what I did, download it on Kindle. It's a great, it's a great yeah. read. Uh, but you do cover the the, the mosque shootings in, yes. in Christchurch and New Zealand's reaction to that, and and I, I think you say that really it showed a, an international leadership that. 
uh, a country could renounce that sort of violence yeah. with automatic weapons and come up with a practical outcome rather than just a, a giant talk fest. I agree. I, th- I think it. W- I think it was a watershed for for New Zealand, mm. um, and and we got um, you know we we got a. a both sides of the political aisle are green on on gun reform. It, it's it's faltered a bit since then, um, and and the argument, well, the gangs didn't turn their guns in, is is really really facile because as far as I'm concerned, they they were never going to do that. But it means they they're less automatic weapons in circulation, and we still have to deal. I, I deal with with the gangs in in, in the book. You do. You do address uh, the, the issue of organised crime. Yeah, and organised yeah. crime, I think, is a, is a, is a big problem that uh, that future governments are going to have to deal with. And uh, that's... R- rather than give them money to 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 have exactly uh, drug reform <laughs> sessions. I, 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 Look, yes. Before we get back, because I do want to address um, the issue of of drugs um, and how that affects general well-being and what can be done about it. But just before we move off the topic of the the Christchurch shooting, um, to to what extent? I mean, you, you may not have looked at, but I, I it does remind me of um, the Anders uh, Breivik uh, attack yes. that he uh, undertook in Norway back in two thousand eleven. Um, you know, killing some seventy seven people, and again that was a, a right wing white yeah. supremacist motivated attack. Uh, Norway uh, is part of um, that sort of Scandinavian group of countries that's, that New Zealand sometimes gets compared to in terms of standard of living and our um, the level of our democracy, etc. Uh, did you look at all at the way Norway addressed that compared to that attack compared to how New Zealand addressed the Christchurch shootings? I'd, I haven't looked at it closely, but I, I'm aware of the incident, and I think they dealt with it quite. Similarly to us, they were sympathetic to the to the victims. They they threw him in jail. Um, I, I see he's just he's uh, he's just uh, sought uh, parole recently, and that's been been denied because he's 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 too dangerous. Um, I think I think right wing extremism is a huge problem, um, and you have to look at the US to see to see what's happening there. And and also with a lot of this anti-vax stuff, it has been driven. It's not been driven for for good reasons. It's been driven out of out of autocratic countries that want the West to to fall apart. Mm. And, and this is an attack on democracy itself. Totally, it is. Look, let's talk about drugs yep. and uh, New Zealand's drug problem, the war on drugs. And I mean, you make the point in the book that, you know, that war, we're, we're making no progress. We're going yeah. backwards with it. Um, what, what do you think uh, some of the solutions might be? Well, well, first of all, let's start off with, with what's your views on the problem? Well, my view on the problem is that there's an oversupply of, of pee. Methamphetamine. Yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere. And um, it's, it's, Costs the same as a as a joint now, so it's an or even less. Yeah, and sometimes they mix it in with joints to yeah. get people hooked. Yeah, yeah. And when I say they, let look, let's call a spade a spade. You know, we're we're talking about the gangs, yeah. um, because they uh, control the manufacture and supply. Yeah, uh, and the reason why they do so is because they do it for commercial gain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's money in it, and a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. Um. So they've got an interest in 
in, in doing that. And of course, not only do they need to organise their supply and manufacture side, but they've also got to keep the demand side going. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think I think what we're doing well is on the is on the um, consumption side where where we are, particularly up in Northland. They've been and and I write about that the the very successful program up there to 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 actually um, ensure that that people with a with a addiction problem are getting the right resources and 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 that means and that means being properly resourced. Um, and having follow up and and getting and, and educating people on the on the dangers of this drug because it's a ter- terrible drug and I, I did a lot of research on it and I took a lot of it out of the book because it, it was too detailed. But maybe a follow on book. Class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing is that what people what people have to realise is that is that um, um, P or, or, or meth. Um, was originated as, as 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 a battle drug. Well, the Nazis used it yeah. to. Um, I mean, the, the, one of the reasons why the French were so surprised that they got invaded so quickly um, was because they just didn't know that soldiers could march for five days solid. But of course, when you're high on meth, exactly. uh, apparently you can. Yeah. And you're quite happy to face machine guns too when you're um, when you, when you're super wasted. Exactly. Yeah. So so it's a it's a it's a battle drug, and that's when you see. When you see people doing execution type killings, you realise that they that they are completely out of their minds, and it's a terrible drug. And I think I think we've got to we've got to support the government's approach um, to to actually Im- improve um, uh, the counselling services and to to decriminalise the the people who get caught up in that process. Well, it's interesting you say that. So Gabor Mate is a uh, doctor and lives in Vancouver. Uh, he's, he's regarded internationally, and particularly in North America, as one of the leading experts on uh, addiction treatment uh, and generally the issue of how to how to deal with drug addictions in particular. Now, he argues that the war on drugs actually punishes people for having been abused and entrenches addiction more deeply um, and the studies have shown that stress is the biggest driver to addictive uh, relapse and behaviour. Um, Marte says that a system that marginalises, ostracises and institutionalises people in facilities with no care and giving them easy access to drugs only worsens the problem. I um, mean, that's the crux of his 40 years of studying this. Yeah. And and I guess what we can take out of that is that New Zealand has a enforcement regime where if you're a drug addict and you've got drugs on you, then you get arrested and go through our court system. They throw you in jail where you're surrounded by other criminals who have got access to drugs. And then the cycle continues either in the prison or when you get out. Um, It's not treated as a medical problem. Do you have any views on that? Well, I, I agree with his philosophy, and um, the work that's been done in New Zealand is is to actually um, destigmatise the you know the people who do get caught up because I, I agree that they are the victims. Um, and, and look, it is meth is a, is an absolute curse on our society. Yeah, no good comes out of it. No, nothing good no. has ever come out of uh, the, the the production and use of methamphetamine. Yeah, and it it. it you know, it debilitates people and it ruins families. Yeah. Um, one thing that that I've thought about in recent years is is how we can support addicts to be able to break the cycle of addiction, uh, and not not just as a temporary break, 
but more of it as a permanent lifestyle break. Yeah. And of course, one of the issues is is that we can't treat them as criminals because the minute you start doing that, you, you, you've lost already. Yeah. Yeah. The, the second thing is providing the support which you're which you're which you're talking about. But a, but a third thing is they need to be able to be in an environment where they haven't got someone giving them drugs to get yeah. them hooked yeah. um, and then getting them back on that cycle. And and maybe a solution is somehow finding parts of the country where people who are trying to get away from meth can go and live. And they know that in that part of the country, uh, the gangs just don't have control or a stranglehold over the community and that they can actually lead a, a meaningful and purposeful life that's drug free. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's it's extremely difficult though to find a a, a drug free environment, and there there is always going to be availability. Mm. But what we've got to do is we've got to give people the the support so that they can break break that cycle of of um, of dependence, and and the next time someone offers them some free drugs is to say no, I'm I'm clean, I, I don't want that. Yeah, although for for some members of society that that could be quite a hard ask, yeah. a tough ask. I yeah. mean, look, the, the problem with meth is it's invasive, covers all aspects of society. It doesn't yeah. just pick on the poor. It, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we've seen plenty of examples of otherwise successful individuals having their lives completely destroyed by the addiction. Yeah. yeah. Um, but a key to recovery. And I mean, I guess you can you can take lessons out of, for example, alcohol recovery. You know, the AA type scenario is actually being in an environment where the drug isn't there, and yeah. it doesn't seem to be that the the focus on uh, our current policies is creating those environments, even if they're little satellites within mm. our country, yeah. where people can lead a life free of drugs. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a it's a it's a great idea if you can achieve it. But I think the other part that we haven't we haven't discussed is the supply side, mm. and I'm concerned that that we need to we need to look at the demand side, which we're talking about, but the supply side, and we have got to, we got to throw those guys in jail for you know the rest of their lives. Well, you know, that's a, a sentencing issue. And, and of course, um, you know, there have been moves towards increasing sentences by creating different tiers depending on your involvement and in, in, uh, the criminal activity around um, uh, drug dealing. Yeah. Uh, so that there is a difference that's there. Um, our law is, is, has changed a lot. It's, it's starting to get more in line with society's expectations on that supply side. Uh, in terms of actually the the precursors aspect to it, I mean, of course, um, pseudo ephedrine was taken out of yeah. cold drinks a long time ago. But it, you know, we're an island nation. Yeah. All the all the precursors come into our country yeah. mostly by ship. Mm. Okay, uh, a little bit by air in terms of air freight. Um, but this is something that really, uh, you know, we have a border. I mean, the country could throw more resources at it, it, it could. Could th to, to intercepting uh, the the precursors as they're coming into the country. Um, exactly, and it's and just a, a question of resource and money. And and we need to, we need um, better resourcing for organised crime. Yeah, but look, a, a large part of this problem isn't just necessarily throwing. Uh, particularly New Zealanders in New Zealand jails, because a large problem with drugs is that it's actually being organised offshore. Mm. 
So, and, and these people are uh, effectively, to a large degree, by our systems, uh, untouchable. Yeah. I mean, we've got no ability to, you know, practically to to grab someone who has organised the exportation out of China of pseudoephedrine uh, and sending it into New Zealand. We can deal with those that are here if we catch them. Yeah. Um, but that that's a problem. Oh, it is. It, yeah. that's a, it's a huge problem. Um, no, no. Look, it's a, it's it's one of our biggest issues, and and the and the five hundred ones from Australia haven't helped either. Yeah, well, that that's a, that's probably a topic for another podcast. <laughs> um, it, yeah, yeah uh, we might we might we might move from that, but but well well put, and I I totally agree with you. The five hundred ones arriving in New Zealand um, are coming from a life. Some of them from a life uh, of uh, not necessarily being great citizens mm. and uh, you can't expect that they're going to arrive here and suddenly um, uh, become model citizens. Oh. Uh, let's talk about improving standards of living, both economic and non-economic. Um, you do talk um, about uh, having you know, conservative fiscal policy but being at the same time socially liberal. Uh, one of the areas that you point to is you, you, you point to equality and improving uh, equality uh, and equity. Now, I, I, I want to be clear on, on what you're actually talking about in the book. So um, I think most listeners, because it is a law podcast, will understand the, the, the concept of equality before the law. I mean, it's probably one of our most fundamental presumptions grounding our New Zealand culture is, is that yeah. every person, irrespective of age, race, sex, you know, etc., is going to be treated equally before our law, and and I think we've probably got a, a good track record of that. Yes, you'd, yes you'd we agree, do. You'd def- agree with definitely, that. yes. And, and then there's the issue of equality of opportunity. Um, um, historically, at least, New Zealand has really embraced uh, equality of opportunity. Um, uh, I'm going back, you know, nearly thirty years ago when I enrolled at law school back in 1991. Um, fees had just been introduced, um, and I had to pay for part of my education, yeah. which, having grown up in a uh, poor family, I mean, my mother had been on a social welfare benefit. In fact, she's been on benefit for most of her life. I had lived in a suburb called Cavisham, which uh, Metro Magazine once described as being uh, New Zealand's greatest slum suburb in the country, um, quite close to a mongrel mob headquarters. And I went to a, a very modest state school that um, uh, one lawyer once described as producing more criminals than professionals. But anyway, um, the point of the matter was is, is that we've been a country that has historically been able to create opportunities for those that want to you know, get an education and get ahead and work hard and do better for themselves and their families. Yep. But there is also another concept of, of equality or equity that I do want to check in with you, and that is uh, one based on equality of, of outcome, yeah. and, and that is, you know, for example, diversity. Um, you know, we don't have enough of this group on this board or in this committee, so we just need to throw them in there to create equality of, of outcome. What, yeah, what, yeah. what equality are you talking about in your book? I'm talking about equality of opportunity, Yeah, not not of outcome, because the outcomes are always going to differ significantly depending on your abilities mm. and um, and and objectives. So, so I think yes, I, th- I think equality is, uh, uh, is 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 really unattainable. But what is what is attainable is equity. Yeah. In other words, having an equitable system and and an egalitarian system 
which is really which is really what New Zealand prides itself on, that we are all equal, and um, and that that has genuine ramifications because people talk about the tall poppy syndrome, but in in a sense, egalitarianism is 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 what says well someone if someone gets a bit ahead of themselves, you know we'll we'll bring them back down to earth again. So so it depends. It has a negative and a, and a positive. But can't, can't we also take pride in, in our successes? Um, if we take the tall poppy, shouldn't that be an opportunity to celebrate an individual's success in the knowledge that that individual would never have succeeded but for the collective efforts of our society? Yeah. I mean, yeah. no one person succeeds purely by their own efforts. Yeah. Um, I mean, f- for example, lawyers, successful lawyers, they didn't become successful purely out of their own efforts. I mean, along the way, they would have had, you know, starting at law school, good teachers. Yeah. And then they would have gone into possibly a law firm and had good mentors. Yeah. You know, exactly. so they're, they're, and, they've, and they've lived in a society that's been structured in a way that's enabled them to achieve. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not speaking in favour of the tall poppy syndrome. Mm. I think we have to celebrate success. And there are going to be some people who who do rise above the others, um, as long as <clears throat> as long as the people who who don't um, uh, become tall poppies have a decent chance, and and they're not they're not wallowing in the mud, then then I'm happy with that, because as long as it's an equitable society. That's that's what I'm aiming for, not not an equal one. And, and, and I guess I'll just make this point again because you, you have, or should I say, repeat what you've said, and that is that an equitable society is one that gives every individual the same opportunities. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, talking about uh, that to a degree, um, let's just talk about um, uh, sort of from an economic point of view. You, you mention in your book about taxation, yes. and you know where we've you make the point that uh, you've got in some societies, and New Zealand to a degree is becoming probably a little bit more like America in this extent, where you've got a small percentage of the of, of our society uh, own a very disproportionate amount of the wealth yes. and seem to be able to continue to do so, and to some extent maybe not necessarily paying uh, any tax at all, certainly not a fair share. We do live in a country that's got a, a rather um, unfair taxation system, uh, which uh, enables people to, in short periods of time, amass large amounts of money through, for example, investing in property. Okay? Yeah. Um, and if we use the um, on the basis that everyone in society should contribute um, in one way or another, uh, you've got a, a situation. I had. Uh, Professor Craig uh, Effie on Alfie on this um, podcast, and he um, uh, made the point that we 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 should really be looking at whether or not we should have a wealth tax because, um, and in one way, you can have two people, same age, same background. One works forty hours a week, has a third of their income paid off to tax. Yeah. Uh, the other person. Uh, does very little, but they've invested in a few rental properties and is, is able to uh, generate the same amount of wealth, but not pay any tax on it. Yeah, and that just does seem to be somewhat unfair. And, and I, I guess to a large extent, it's going back to the point of, you know, at what stage did a house go from being a family home to an early retirement strategy? Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, no, look, I agree. I think I think the housing market's um, out of control, and um, and I think I think it's it's due for a correction. And people have made a lot of money out of it, but it's a it's it's a bubble as far as I'm concerned. And um, but and, and is that dangerous? Like, what what is what is the mischief that 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 causes for a society? Well, well, it 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 means you have a boom and bust type philosophy where it's either the economy is either booming or crashes, and and I think I think the concern I have is that we could be in for in for a crash. Okay. Well, what, what about? I mean, the point. One of the points you make in your book, and it, it is a quite an important point, is about the absolute necessity of housing security. Yeah. That for a society, a good society that is focused on general well-being, people need to be able to have homes, uh, have house security of housing. Yeah, yes. um, isn't this starting to create a, a two-tier society in New Zealand where you've got the property-owning class and those that will just never yeah, get on the property yeah. ladder at all, which means that they don't have security. They'll only be tenants for the rest of their lives. They're yeah. at the whim of the landlord. Landlord wants to uh, kick them out. I mean, you know, there are some restrictions on that, um, but certainly um, the landlord decides they're going to sell the house. Well, they're out, yeah, yeah. Um, and off they go. I, I definitely. I mean, I, I, I deal with that, and I, and I say that the um, you know both governments' housing policy has been a disaster for many years, many from, decades. Uh, yeah, it's uh, been completely ignored, and we need we need affordable housing for people. Yeah, well, look, I guess it's also could possibly create a little bit of intergenerational resentment. I mean, you've yeah. got, you know, uh, the millennials um, who, unless they're from a wealthy family yeah. that's heavily invested in property, uh, any prospects of them becoming property owners um, uh, are unlikely. Yeah. They're not going to have the, the opportunities that you and I had no. um, to be able to purchase a home yeah. Um. And and start. You know, have a home that they can call their own and live. I mean, the Kiwi dream of the quarter acre is gone. It's I mean, gone. this is what this na- nation was founded on. It was founded on um, uh, Polynesians who uh, were in search of more land. Yeah. Um. In part, uh, and and on Europeans who couldn't afford to buy land in Europe. Yeah. And would travel six months at great cost and risk, in the hope of being able to set up and 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 develop a home here in New Zealand. Yeah. But that that dream's well and truly gone. Uh, I agree. I, th- I think it's I think it's a huge problem. Okay. So I mean, do, do you think we might have missed an opportunity with this pandemic? Um, I mean, putting aside changes to housing policy that you can make, and particularly around taxation, which encourages rampant investment and in, in housing. Um, but also, you know, we, we've, we're, we're coming up to you know now a good solid two years into this pandemic. Uh, some experts say we've got uh, are still a long way to go, uh, but we're still using MIQ. We're using hotels owned by overseas owners uh, who've never yeah. enjoyed 100% occupancy before, um, and are enjoying that. When you know, for example, we've got a. Uh, an air force base at Ohaki and a military base next door at Wairu. We could have, um, yeah, we could have resurrected yeah. the Ministry of Works and said, "Look, we're going to build a um, hundred thousand small homes." Yeah. Um, and then once this pandemic's over, we'll, we'll hand them over to Housing New Zealand because yeah. we've got people in emergency housing and motels 
etc., there will always be a need for housing. Yeah. So it's not wasted money. Yeah. But every time, uh, every month, we send uh, millions of dollars offshore to pay for overseas hotels, uh, or should I say overseas owners of hotels yes. through MyQ, there's just wasted money that's yeah. going offshore. I mean, yeah. is there an opportunity? There, there may still be an opportunity there. What do you think? Well, well I think... Um, if we're going to reinstate MRQ, because it, it looks like now that that we we're in a new territory now. Well, it is as, of, as of Sunday, we now we we've we we could we couldn't stop um, Omni, so it's in the community now. Now it's a new ball game, and I so I think MRQ's a thing of the past. Oh look, I'd agree with you. I mean, look, if if the risk of getting COVID off someone uh, recently arrived off a plane is the same as going to the supermarket to buy some milk. It, it doesn't make much sense that no. you'd have MIQ. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's. I think that's over. And I think I, I supported the, the government's policy as it was when the pandemic started. But I think things have changed. It's a new. It's a new world now, and we've just got to. We've got to move with it. You're right. Look, um, uh, the last topic I wanted to talk about before we move into the the must model, and I'm really keen <laughs> to hear about that, is um, uh, democratic participation. I mean, you talk yes. about uh, and having a society that encourages uh, participation more. Yeah. Um, uh, what are your views on on that? I think it's really important that we participate as citizens in society, and 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 I think lawyers have a particular role to play in that. In the sense that we we all part of a of a connected whole, and um, that means at a community level, you know, regionally and nationally, um, lawyers have a particular perspective that they can bring to bear, and and I think we have we have a responsibility to society to actually engage in that process, and I'd really encourage lawyers to to do so, um, and. It, it it means that um, that decisions that are made, you know, social policy decisions, can be made on a on a considered basis and 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 taking into account legal ramifications. Do you think that perhaps there, there's a, a good argument to 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 look at uh, introducing into our education system? Uh, democratic participation and citizenship, um, so that you know our young people who will be the future of our nation have a better understanding about how democracy operates and and how you can participate within society. Yeah, I think I think that's a great idea, um, but I think if that's not done formally, I think it needs to be done through these sorts of vehicles, is by reminding people. That society doesn't operate without without contribution from from people, and we all have to play our part. And and it, and and for us, for lawyers, it means putting back into the profession. For example, is really important because um, it doesn't function without without that. Well, well you're absolutely right. It collapses. Um, it will completely close, but then this is the aspect of community service, and there's great benefit for that. Oh, look, one thing I wanted to briefly touch on is um, a large part of well-being. We talked about longevity before. Is that there? There is this concept that a, a National Geographic explorer called a Dan Butiner um, came up with called the the Blue Zones of the World, and what he had discovered was that there was uh, seven. There's now apparently eight now uh, Blue Zones of the World. Now I was fortunate; I got to visit one of them 
three times. Uh, and for four months, I was able to live there in, uh, in a, a place in Costa Rica called the Nicoya Peninsula. Now, what the experts, because, um, you know, scientists and, and various other people very interested in longevity, why people live longer and live happier, um, decided that they would go and do deep dives and research into why these areas of the world seem to be successful on that measure. Now, in uh, Costa Rica and the Nicoya Peninsula, what uh, what seemed to be the secret of their success was that uh, was community connectedness. So connect, your level of connection to your community correlated to you living longer. Yeah, that was yeah. the thesis, yes. and the research seemed to show that. Yeah. And to a large extent, I, I see in your book is encouraging people to become more actively involved rather than living in this sort of Western a silo where you, you you live in your nuclear family. You don't know who your neighbour's name is. You know yeah, like that yeah. sort of that sort of culture. Yes. Oh, no, yeah. no, exactly. And um, uh, I think I think a great example of that is the community that I live in in Hearn Bay, where down a down a right of way, all the neighbours are friendly. We look after each other. We do stuff for each other, and it's just a small community. And and it means a farm away that my wife feels safe that there's always someone nearby who's going to rush to her assistance if needed and uh, it's just it's just th- those small things make make life a lot better and i think that if we treat if if all new zealanders treat their their neighborhood as a as a as a little cul-de-sac or right of way mm. um and all regions do the same then 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 you 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 build the society where where we trust each other well, we were very fortunate that because of our population size, we can we can really achieve that as a goal. Yeah. I mean, just coincidentally, Costa Rica has a very similar size to New Zealand. They've got uh, four and a half million people. Uh, their largest in, uh, uh, export earner for their GDP was tourism, and ours was up until uh, this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, they disabled, or they did away with their army, and uh, when they got independence from Spain in 1949, and it's it, 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 they are a very kind people. Mm. I mean, you you get a real good feeling from them that they're genuinely interested in the well-being of not just themselves yes. and their community, but also people who who visit. And uh, maybe perhaps a large part of what you're advocating is kind of a very kind of Buddhist view that we're all interconnected. Yes. And uh, I guess we can all think of examples, particularly when we travel overseas and you, you meet someone and, and they say you're in, 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 in Paris and they say, oh, do you know such and such? And, yes. and you've got to laugh because you do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, it's all, scary. All right, look, tell us about the MUST model, M-U-S-T model. Um, what is it? Um, is what, what I try to do is really was encapsulate the whole theory into, into um, four component parts. Mm. Um, and, and, Almost circles interlinking with each other, and the first uh, the, the first M is uh, in, in must is the means, and that's the, the 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 ways and means to to actually achieve well being, and that's where the fiscal responsibility side of it is. We have to have an economy that's that's functioning well to actually pay for these policies. Um, they they don't come cheap, and they're certainly not free. So someone has to pay for them. So that's the that's really the most important thing, and and that is the right wing side of this philosophy. It's not this is not a, a socialist feel good idea. It's actually it's actually grounded in um, in in good solid um, 
management of the economy. Because someone's got to pay for it. That's right. Yeah. And um, and and so so that's the the first ingredient. If you don't have the money, you can't start doing anything. You can't do anything. You basically just languish. So that's the first part. The second is utility, and 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 that is that is Bentham's basic proposition that you have to do the best to the most people that you can with that limited resource. So you achieve um, utility is if you've got if you've got a dollar, you give everyone in that community. Sorry, and you've got a hundred people in in that community. You give them each one cent. Um, that is going to achieve the best well-being for the most people. You don't give one person the, you know, the chief or the the head um, ninety-nine cents, and then everyone else give them, you know, say, well, you you can share the rest of it. That 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 that, that is the capitalist model. That is rampant. That's rampant um, capitalism that I argue against. So that's the second part is utility. The third, and we haven't really discussed this. Is sustainability. Mm. It's probably should be the first because if you don't have a sustainable environment, you you basically don't have life. And um, this is a topic. I mean, a huge topic in itself. But um, we've got to have intergenerational environmental protection. We've got to, we've got to look after the planet. And personally, and, and this is a this is another podcast. Personally, I think the tipping point has come. We passed the tipping point. You, you do um, um, in in your book. You you, you do quote uh, Dr. Robert Maskell, um, who uh, I'm hoping to get on the podcast. Uh, so he's yeah. a, for those listeners, he's a, a environmental resource management expert here in New Zealand. He's done a PhD in uh, in that area. Yes. Um, and and I, I won't do any spoilers. People can buy the book and, and read what um, you, you set out, you know, from your discussions with him. Yeah, it's well worth reading. But what you also do mention in the book is you mention um, Rocket Lab. Yes. And you know what a success it is for for New Zealand, etc. Uh, but what you don't state in the book is you, is you don't talk about the from a sustainability point of view. You know the carbon footprint that these guys must be creating yeah. when they're launching these rockets up into space, yeah. and they're doing, and then the the satellites they're putting up there just stay up there creating That's you know true. this great That's way. True. I mean, these are all off balance sheet, you know, because yeah. we don't look at these businesses. I mean, it's like our dairy industry. I mean, yeah. we don't look at the balance sheet of what they're doing to our waterways. Yeah, yeah. Um, isn't it's, that it's, something that we we need to be thinking about? It's true. Uh, it's true, but. Um, what you have to do is, is, is my model requires the, the ways and means to achieve um, well-being, and you've got to have you've got to have some industries that are that are employing people and competing on the international stage. But don't don't we also need to be thinking that for people to be truly happy, unless you're really selfish, mm-hmm. that if they're going to have purpose, the, the purpose should in part be to making sure there's something left of this planet for future generations. Yeah. I mean, do we really want to be talking to our grandchildren and having them say, are you serious? You burnt all that uh, compressed carbon just so you could put a little satellite up in the sky yeah. so you could watch um, streaming TV from the US. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, that's true. That's true. I mean, I mean Rocket Lab, um, yeah, is probably not the most sustainable business. 
but I do look at other sustainable businesses in, in the book. So you do. Yeah. I, I do yeah. compare them to others <laughs> that use a recycled material. So, yeah. so, but, but I think, I think Rock, Rocket Lab is a good example of innovation and, um, and, you know, using, using our QE smarts because that, that's the other thing I try and, I try and uh, describe is, is, is our ability to actually do, do things with limited resources. And I think that that's what I was trying to what I was trying to say with Rocket Lab. They started on the smell of an oily rag, and were very successful, and have now, of course, moved to the US and are, excuse the pun, taking off. Um, but um, what we have the ability in New Zealand to do is to actually is is to actually be incredibly sustainable, because and I use the metaphor of our sports teams. Where we have limited limited players, but we compete with the best in the world and beat them. And how do we do that? By by using the the, the philosophy of well being, which is you look after the the team as a whole. You play for the team, and and, and that's what makes our our team so successful. And, and and we also do have that which you you point to and you do address in the book, particularly around yachting, that real Kiwi innovation. Yeah, I mean. Uh, it reminds me of going back to Ernest Rutherford. I think he said something along the lines of, "Well, we don't have the money, so we've just got to be smarter." Yeah, you know, something yes. along those lines. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we don't yeah. Have, we don't have the players. Yeah. So we've got to look after the players we've got. Yeah, absolutely. Now your book does and uh, cover not only just, I guess, aspirational views and um, and your views right at a, almost a philosophical level, but it does contain some. Uh, real hard practical advice yeah. um, in terms of not only how society can uh, promote general well-being, but also how individuals can address particular issues in their life. Now, uh, we won't dive too deep into that, but I'd, I mean, I'd certainly encourage people who are listening uh, to the podcast that um, this isn't just a aspirational feel-good book. There's actually some hard uh, pieces of practical, sensible good advice in there. Oh, thanks, thanks, Chris. Yeah, I've, I try to put um, to make it, you know, practical and useful, rather than just a you know a philosophical meander through you know history and. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah it's look. The book is certainly not sort of a pop psychology book in, in yeah, any ways yeah. whatsoever. It's a it's a book that's uh, well thought of, very well researched, but I yeah, think that that's yeah. because of your uh, because of, because of your career. Um, I, and, I did have a researcher. Uh, yep. I hired a researcher, Targo. She yep. worked worked for about a year and a half on the book. Yep. So there's a lot of research uh, that I you know, have used and haven't used. So I want to ca- congratulate you. I look for um, a busy QC like yourself. I'm always in awe and amazed <laughs> the, to, to that you can find the the time and the energy yeah. to put into publishing a book, particularly one of the caliber and standard that you have, and also outside of uh, your area of professional expertise. So look, well done. I'd encourage uh, users to get it. Of course, you've got your website. That's uh, where you can yes. get more information. Yep. Uh, and, and it can be ordered, what, on Amazon? Yes, on Amazon and Kobo. Um, okay. And it's also available um, through through independent book, bookstores in Auckland at uh, Time Out books in Mount Eden, very good bookstore. 
and also novel in Jervois Road, just up the road from me, my local bookstore. <laughs> okay. so, uh, are you, you going to have a book signing session at all? Is that something you do? Is that, I, is it, yeah. I was going to have one tomorrow night. Right. And I canned it because of the... Because of the COVID. COVID. So right. COVID, COVID's come back to bite me again. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well done. Uh, Clive Elliott, Queen's Council and author, thank you very much for being on the podcast. That's a pleasure. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under. 